0: Welcome back to the DealMakers podcast show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMakers show. So today we're going to really enjoy, you know, the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, like building, scaling, financing. But we're really going to be highlighting, you know, pivoting, you know, how they went also about using M&A, more on the buy side to grow inorganically, as well as the international strategy that they use to expand and also raising money uh, in different flavors like they've done, and also the equity you know, in cash that they've been able to, to get from investors. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Gerard Trotman. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, I'm Hunter. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: So originally born in Quito, in Ecuador, and then, you know, you spent some years, too, between Venezuela and the U.S. I mean, it sounds like uh, you've been quite around the world. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up?
1: Yeah, look absolutely. So we've we've spent a fair bit uh, of time in South America. That's where I was born. Uh, spent my time there. Actually, my my dad was working for for a German company, so we've been spending always four years in the mark in, in the country. And then we we'll move on and uh, look. We loved we loved South America in the eighties. Absolute fantastic to be there. Um, and then had the chance to quickly also spend some time in the U.S. Um, but actually, I grew up you know majority of my time been in Portugal. Um, spent spend good uh, you know ten years. Um, at, at school close to the beach, uh, very close to Lisbon. Um, had a fantastic time there. Still miss it a lot. Still, you know, one of my favorite places for for doing vacations uh, and has, and obviously, you know, uh, Lisbon and the whole, you know, kind of scene also for TAC has become really interesting in Europe. So, uh, you know, it's great to see that. And then, um, you know, went over to Germany for starting my studies. Um, been... Been studying uh business and, and IT and um yeah, uh since since I'm basically 17 now in Germany and right now, uh for more than 10 years already in Munich, uh, where we're working on our company.
0: And how do you think that having that uh worldview, you know, being being all over the place, like uh, as we were saying, Ecuador, US, Venezuela, Portugal, uh, you know, now Germany. How do you think that that has opened, you know, your worldview, the way that you think about things and the way that you also think about problems?
1: So I think first and foremost, I think it's, it's you know, we have more than 40 nationalities in our company today. And I think it's part of the DNA of, of our company that, you know, from day one, we, uh, you know, obviously everything is in English that goes without saying, but it's been, you know, from day one, we've been having colleagues from all over the world. I enjoy the vibe you get from it. I think until today, we learn every day from, you know, culture, you know, different bank holidays, you learn so much on the way. And I think for me personally, I think the biggest advantage has been to grab languages, to have some form of touch point um, to these cultures so you can quickly integrate um, and have chats and actually connect with people. And I think... You know, for me, connection and trust is all about building a strong culture. So look, I think it's been it's, it, it's, it's given you some, some, some good, good starting point um, when you think about building a global company. But it's definitely something that I would say I, do, I more enjoy in general to have this more cosmopolitan global vibe in the company and, and having people from all around actually come together to build great
0: products. And we'll talk about the uh, company Global Savings Group in just a little bit now in your case um right after your university which you did there in germany you decided to go into you know different fields and, and and obviously consulting was a big one i guess when it comes to consulting i think that it prepares you in a very interesting way because it helps you on perhaps breaking down bigger problems to to smaller problems and then you know giving you further visibility into how to go about things on the execution i guess in your in your case those years that you did in consulting What do you think they give you access or visibility to and that perhaps are helping you now as an entrepreneur?
1: So I think think there's some pros and cons to it. Uh, Let me start with the pros. I think, as you said, I think it gives you some really good tools when it comes down to problem solving in terms of, you know, obviously modeling uh, when you think about, hey, how do I have to think about unit economics? It comes down to, hey, um, you know, leadership, and uh you know communication frameworks that you can apply top-down communication how do you structure communication how do you you know bring complex problems down into a couple of visuals so you can bring everybody behind it and actually start the problem solving driver trees in terms of understanding and making people aware how you know specific variables impact the kpi that everybody's working to so i think I think it gives you those very methodological tools. And let's not forget, consulting companies in their first years put a lot of money into giving you also those trainings that, you know, as a classical startup, you cannot afford, right? So when it comes down to moderation training, presentation training, all of that, that's fantastic, fantastic stuff. I can only recommend everyone who has access to it to apply it because there are tons of it. How do you provide great feedback? So I think it shapes you both on your analytical side. But also on what we classically also would call the basics of leadership, and I, I think that's that, that's that's a you know brutal pro. On the con side, though, I have to tell you that I think you know consultants very often can be really bad entrepreneurs, um, and I've been seeing that quite often. You know, there's a high risk diversity um, that I, in general, have seen um, from from that side. I think we're from that school. You very quickly are. You know, identifying and spotting where the risks, but not where the opportunities. So I think that drives your mindset. I think that's something that you learn in in consulting very quickly. And I think there's kind of this whole element of, you know, over conceptualizing versus actually doing stuff, where I think, you know, particularly the early years, you, you just very often need to. Stop, you know, conceptualizing stuff, but actually get you know, your feet on the ground and actually run and, and move stuff. So that's a bit how I would look at those consulting years. I'm very grateful for them. I think they, they definitely helped.
0: Now, in your case, at what point does the, you know, the idea of really venturing to the venture space, you know, especially here, you know, with Global Savings Group, how, how does that come about?
1: Yeah, so look, so we've been, I've been like four to five years in the consulting space. And I think one of the things that I was getting really, you know, nervous, bored, and, and actually disliking a lot is you never own your decisions. And, you know, I, I started I started actually having to go back to restructure, you know, at the same client that I was consulting, I was doing three or four years later, I was called to restructure again. And I was kind of looking at, all the stuff we had recommended and basically the presentations were still there and nothing has been executed. So that was a bit frustrating to see. And um, look, I had, I had um, you know, sort of say two, two, three good friends out of university um, that were in a similar situation. So we said, hey, look, how about we actually do stuff instead of recommending stuff? And we really felt, you know, it was 2011, 2012, we really felt that also, kind of the internet was providing opportunities, and, and it's just a good moment to, to give this a try. We were all, you know, our mid twenties, not much to lose. But we just felt it's a good opportunity to give this a try and, and kind of, you know, go, take some risk. And um, you know, back in time, so 2011, 2012, there was not too much here in the DC scene and, and, and Germany, or in general. So uh, we were running around Berlin. We had, you know uh two or three incubators here that uh, we were talking to and um we by coincidence stumbled over rocket internet. So um for those who are maybe not so familiar with Rocket, um basically uh, a uh, big venture building company that uh you know was behind companies such as Salando, HelloFresh, you know, um and and and, and, and really shifting massive one of the biggest let's say uh tech funds uh, that they were steering uh, in Europe now um we basically stumbled over you know met met so to say um the founder Oliver Zamba, behind it and and we're juggling ideas and and uh yeah look uh, he hated all our ideas <laughs> but he liked us as a team and uh we started we started actually you know um talking about doing a couple of things together and ventured into Asia, helped there to build um, some of the Amazon clones um, that Rocket back in time was launching, as well as in Africa. So we did that for three, four months until we then actually realized, hey, we really want to start our own thing. And, and together with Rocket, then started what you know back in time was called
0: drop lifts. So then, so then, what happened next?
1: You know, I'll, I'll spare you the details what we were doing, but for the sake of at least just giving a glimpse, it was it was a you know, again, this is 2012, right? So Facebook and social is really hot shit back in time. Um, And what we were basically doing was building a gifting service within the Facebook environment. Very simply speaking, you as a, so to say, Facebook user, we would kind of build an application that when you would have birthday or you would get married or whatever event you can think of that's worth celebrating, you could basically send a gift card Um, to your friend having that event and other people would see it on the wall and they could chip on top of it and it would be a group gift, right? So basically, we would connect advertisers that would give us those gift cards with consumers and put that all on social media. Sounded like a terrific idea um, and and tons of people were, were kind of, you know, curious about it. Advertisers loved it, the brands loved it because they would engage in social media. But unfortunately, consumers didn't like it at all, right? So people seeing those gift cards on their walls perceived it as advertising, right? And uh, that definitely didn't help in terms of getting any unit economics right um, from actually getting enough people who would send a gift card to those who would receive a gift card to those that actually would redeem a gift card. So basically, the whole conversion funnel was really, really tricky. Um, And that's why after three or four months already, and look, we had more than 150 people already after four months, All right? So that is basically, we're talking about the scale where you know we had more than 40 illegal entities set up We were all in for launching this thing across the globe although the unit accommodates were not there. One of the things to keep in mind why we went so rapid into this is because you know we basically were uh so sort to of say copycatting a Swedish uh role model. Okay. And um we, we thought you know Their business was already, you know, picking up. We thought the model is kind of proven. Uh, Unfortunately, nothing was proven. And, uh, you know, we were already on a big scale until we actually figured it's way too hard, way too hard to make this work and had to go massively on the brakes to then actually pivot.
0: So is that the way that, you know, that evolves ultimately to what we know today of Global Savings Group?
1: Yeah, exactly. So literally from there on, right? So 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 you need to imagine we went from zero to one hundred fifty, back to five, right? Um, which basically then in parallel, you know, we had to think, what do we do now? And, 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 you know, we were in this gift card space, right? So we started to understand how gift carding works, how breakage works, what people like, what they don't like, right? We tried to kind of talk to lots of consumers. And and out of it, you know, we step-by-step ventured into the whole space of, you know, how can you use gift cards, coupons, cashback, deals in general, to attract consumers through different channels and actually build an own channel for big e-commerce advertisers. That's about how we ventured into a Global Savings Group became today. But it was a very painful, very painful six to nine months where, you know, I would say we kind of broke all the rules that you would find in the one-on-one of the Y Combinator, how you should start your company, right? So we went against all of them, scale too early, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. With that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So for the people that are listening to Get It, what ended up being the business model of Global Savings Group? How are you guys making money?
1: So what we do today is we literally connect um, consumers, so people like you and me with um, the big e-commerce stores that we all know, right? Big clients of ours, Amazon, eBay, right? Of course, every category you can think of, right? From travel to fashion, you know, to, you know, pet food, whatever you guys buy online, um, you know, we, the likelihood we work um, with those players is very high. And we are a marketing channel for them. And uh, that's that's the connection, right? So basically the way to think about us is when somebody buys um, through one of our websites, uh, we get a cut in the commission. Um, so we only get paid if there's a, you know, successful transaction happening through us. And, um, you know, literally the types of sites we operate go from cashback sites where we basically give you part of the cashback. So, you know, uh, for example, if there's a 10% cashback that we would get, uh, that we would offer, um, that's what you get as a consumer paying through us. And that's part of the commission that we get from a partner of ours if it's through coupons then it's a coupon that the partner of ours has provided or if it's through our deal communities um, it's basically we run the largest deal communities in the world so literally it's uh, a group of people actually vote if something is hot or not and they would then basically, um, you know, purchase um, the corresponding deal offered. Um, and as, as a result, all of this is commission-based, um, it's performance-based, and um, we only get, so to say, money if our partners, so the big merchants, actually successfully get a transaction through us.
0: Now... Talk to us about M&A, because you guys have been using M&A, too, for the growth on the buy side. So how do you think about M&A and, and anything that you can tell us on this run?
1: Yeah. So look, let's maybe start. Why, why did we venture into M&A, right? Um, I think, you know, classically, when you look into the textbooks, and this is what we saw also in our case, is when you have a highly fragmented industry, um, M&A starts making a lot of sense because you basically can go and um, address a market where you have a very similar client base, uh, a similar user base, and basically the product uh, to a certain extent, um, so sort to of say, can be dragged out. You put your own platform, and then you can craft a lot of synergies across all areas. That's why we identified a lot of the uh, sort of say players in our space are pretty profitable. Which basically gives you quite some opportunity to think about how you actually want to mix your financing, um, and this is something you know we've we've uh, continuously also used. Um, we'll talk more about that in a second. But in general, we've done seven M&A deals um, since 2015. Um, you know, we uh, did them, um, you know, in a classical way. We would just uh, you know throw cash uh, completely by the entity. We have had way more, you know, complex transactions where we would venture into new spaces, um, such as, for example, the um, acquisition of Ical, largest cashback player in France, for example, which was a hundred plus million transaction, um, where we did a combination of, um, cash, debt and equity. Um, so basically the shareholders of Ical have become also shareholders of GSG. All right. So, because they believed a lot in the joint combined story, um, and similarly with that now, just very recently in January 2023, a merger um, with Pepper, um, where a very similar type of transaction happened—a uh, combination of, uh, so to say, cash, uh, debt, and equity—and um, we we run these. Uh, you know, it's obviously you know the bigger the deals, uh, the complexity gets higher. Um, but we've really invested into building ourselves a proper m a setup in order to execute this repeatedly in order to take all the learnings from one deal to the next, from the financing side, from the screening side, from you know the due diligence side. and it has become a real capability and a competence that we have established um, you know because we we, we we realize at the end of the day you know you uh, if, if you have to do a lot of these and you see that the value creation is there in terms of capturing synergies uh, and so on, that you really need to plan this out super clearly upfront. You need a clear playbook, you know. So I think that's that's probably one of the biggest learnings for us is there's a clear playbook from the day that sort of say the transaction happens on what happens six weeks after, what happens nine sort of say nine weeks after that, from defining the target operating model. Up to, you know, how do we start, which elements and areas do we basically integrate first, which things do we not integrate, um, in order to really run through this and capture those synergies. Because, you know, classically what I've been seeing is that there's a lot of MA happening, but the companies, you know, kind of capture some of the low-hanging fruit and that's it. Right. And we we from the beginning always said, no, we wanna, you know, we do that, we do the MNA, you know, out of a strategy, out of strategic perspective, where we believe the value of the company is bigger as these companies come together under one roof and where we can capture cross product synergies, right? Uh, which means, you know, on the data side, exploring all the opportunities we have across all the different assets we have, and actually build from there a better advertising network uh, for our clients up to basically building credit product products by integrating the offering. So there's there's a bunch of rationales why we integrate pretty deeply over time. And, and that requires a pretty structured approach um, from, from the beginning uh, until the end.
0: Now, obviously, you know, too, like when it comes to um, raising money on the equity side, I mean, you guys have raised 80 million. Obviously, all the debt and all that stuff, you know, is different for those acquisitions. But basically on the equity side, and, and now, you know, that you're saying that you were also providing equity to these companies that you acquired. Uh, all of these folks, you know, not only investors, employees, uh, advisors, even even customers, you know, it, it's it's all about vision no? and, and, and where you're heading with this. And as you're thinking about vision, imagine, Gerard, that you were going to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of GSG is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: So, look, I think it is a world where we have become so good in our product offering that as a consumer, you can go tap into our sites and whatever question that you actually would want to research in the net somewhere else. Because imagine you're buying, you know, something a bit more complex than maybe your next night shoes, right? Uh, Let's imagine you want to buy something that is a bit more you know, in terms of the basket, something that you really want to put a lot of research into, right? Um, What our vision is then completed if we minimize your entire research time, you come to our product and you literally get everything you need in order to say, well, look, I understand what I want to buy, where I want to buy it. Um, I totally have the best value, right? Which, you know, and I really mean value, not just necessarily price, but basically what is right for me. In terms of the product, and I can do the transaction, then you know I think we we accomplished our mission because you know the problem we're seeing today is that you know people spend hours and hours still researching where to buy. There's such an overload of options and opportunities. You have every year thousands and thousands of new online shops coming in, you know, bringing or offering. And, you know, other than, you know, TikTok and all those social media channels that kind of lure you into buying quickly, tap with your fingernail, because an influencer tells you, we really want to make sure we put all the hard work there to give you all the information at your fingertips so that you do actually a very conscious and well-researched decision. And uh, that's what we're working towards with all our products.
0: So, so obviously here we are uh, talking about the uh, future, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Imagine if I was to put you into a time machine. You know, you've been at it now for almost 12 years with GSG. And let's say I was to bring you back to the moment where you were thinking about giving your notice, you know, back in 2012 and and venturing into the entrepreneurial world. And let's say you had the opportunity of sitting down with that younger Gerard and giving your younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: I think the... uh... There is a um, element of truly understanding risks and opportunities of any given business model, right? So, my my biggest, so to say, advice would be really understand, you know, or build a business where you can clearly defend over time, long-lasting your distribution channels, own the consumers, and um, have the most sticky cohorts that are potentially even possible. Why I say that is because I think at the end of the day, you know, whatever business we build, particularly when you build B2C like we do, um, it all boils down about how well, you know, how, what, what value are you providing to the user, but how do you ring face the user? How do you make sure it's so ring that that they truly are yours and, and, and sticky and loyal to yours? And there's so much that plays into that. And I think... Back in time, you know, we were not aware of how difficult that can be. And, um, you know, we learned that over time to build it up. Um, but I think really understanding when it comes down to the B2C side of, you know, how uh, obsessed you need to be with it and how obsessed you need to be, not only to understand uh, customers, but also how to ring face them. Um, probably that would have been, you know, an advice in order to probably also adjust our strategy earlier in that direction. I think we, we started that a but, bit later
0: and and And, what would you say for you guys, as you're looking back, what was the break point you know the breakthrough point you know in that direction
1: so i I think that we had we had multiple of those points. I think there's not that one magical moment. I think we had one moment where we figured how to scale our business um and we felt okay now it's gaining the traction, you know we're growing fastly, we're able to drive relevant revenue. Um I, I think that was that was maybe five to six years down the road, okay, where we felt okay, we're starting to sit on something relevant here. Um then I think there was a second turning point when you know a couple of these major MA transactions actually went through but we suddenly felt okay, look, now the company is getting more and more also diversified, more solid across, you know, a bunch of dimensions. You know, we were losing dependencies from you know maybe specific clients or specific, you know. Customer acquisition channels, that was maybe the second point, right? Because part of M&A is not always just crafting synergies, but actually, you know, working on your positioning and making sure that you strategically position the company better and better and more, you know, and, and kind of build your modes. Um, so modes meaning really, you know, competitive advantages um, that are hard to break through for for competitors. And, and then I think, you know... Um, As we then started, um, and and I think this is this is really the last twelve months, but we really also feel that we can, you know, out of that, uh, not only generate uh, well, uh, you know, strong top line growth, but also bring it down uh, to the bottom line, right? So I think, I think depending on your phase, you need to prove yourself, but also, you know, in general, that your business is able to drive value, you know, across the board. And I think we had probably these three milestones, and and, 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 you know, uh, continuing to work on it, and we're not done. Far from done.
0: So for the people that are listening, Gerard, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so?
1: So I think there's, there's a bunch of things, right? LinkedIn, uh, you know, feel free to to just, you know, put me a message there, Twitter uh, or X. Uh, no problem, you know, uh, do that. Uh, and happy chat also in the show notes, my email address, no problem. Uh, you can use any of those.
0: Amazing. Well, Gerard, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me. It was great talking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts,